God, make speed to save me. O Lord, make haste to help me, to help me, to help me, to help me. O God, make speed to save me. O Lord, make haste to help me, to help me, to help me. Hi, I'm Derek Olson, creator of St. Bede Productions. I'm an Episcopal layman with a Ph.D. in New Testament and a passion for the intersection of liturgy and scripture. Welcome to episode 13 of the St. Bede Psalmcast, a podcast about the Psalms in the Revised Common Lectionary, reading them in the context of the Sunday service and alongside the Church Fathers. Today, we'll be talking about Psalm 66, verses 1 through 9, the psalm appointed for Track 2 for Proper 9 of Year C, which this year falls on July 3rd. I'll be reading the psalm from the version in the Book of Common Prayer. Feel free to follow along in whatever translation you prefer. Be joyful in God, all you lands. Sing the glory of his name. Sing the glory of his praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. Because of your great strength, your enemies cringe before you. All the earth bows down before you, sings to you, sings out your name. Come now and see the works of God, how wonderful he is in his doing toward all people. He turned the sea into dry land, so that they went through the water on foot, and there we rejoiced in him. In his might he rules forever. His eyes keep watch over the nations. Let no rebel rise up against him. Bless our God, you peoples. Make the voice of his praise to be heard, who holds our souls in life and will not allow our feet to slip. Okay, so we're done with the psalm now. If you are following along with the prayer book, you might be a little confused, and I'll explain why in just a moment. So, why is this psalm appointed here for this day? The gospel appointed for this Sunday is Luke 10, 1 through 11, and then also 16 to 20. This text is the sending out of the 70. So, we tend to hear and think about the twelve apostles as the key followers of Jesus. Part of what Luke Acts does, though, is to give us a bigger sense of the scope of the first Jesus movement. It wasn't just twelve guys. There was a lot more to it. Luke's gospel gives us little glimpses into a larger body of folks around Jesus, and even a certain amount of organization. Thus, you do have the twelve who are the inner circle and are recognized as leaders, but then you also have a wider group who are going around with Jesus and, and some women who were particularly functioning as funders for the group. So, remember, after Judas dies and the apostles decide to replace him, one of the criteria they use in selecting his replacement is that he must be, quote, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection, end quote. That's from Acts 1, 21 and 22. And so, of course, out of that number, they find two guys, uh, Joseph Barsabbas and Matthias. Uh, and Matthias is the one who gets picked. So the reference to the 70 followers who were sent out then refers to this broader group of disciples, Jesus followers, who are not the apostles. And of course, the number 70 has all sorts of important connections, especially back to the 70 elders of Israel who helped Moses and Aaron direct the people. So Jesus sends these guys out to proclaim the kingdom. And it's the same words that Jesus borrowed from John the Baptist. So we can see a consistent pattern in the message here. We also get a section where the 70 return, and they're rejoicing that the demons are obeying them and fleeing. 
and Jesus recounts seeing Satan fall like a flash of lightning as a symbol of his power and authority being cast down by this proclamation of the gospel and of the kingdom of God. This notion of the preaching mission and its success is going to be the controlling theme here. The first lesson in track two is Isaiah 66, 10 through 14. This is a call to rejoice from the very end of Isaiah. It's talking about the return from exile in Babylon and giving a vision of what life in a restored Jerusalem will look like, presenting Jerusalem personified as the loving mother who feeds and tends her babies. Why this Old Testament lesson? I think the central connection is the repetition of the word rejoice. In the Gospel's narrative of the return of the Seventy, they return with joy. But then Jesus tells them, quote, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So, rejoicing seems to be the connection here. I'm not sure it's a great connection, but it, it seems to work. When we consider our psalm along these lines, it makes a little more sense. Certainly, the psalm is likewise a strong call to rejoice. Additionally, the psalm has a missionary thrust. It's not calling Israel to rejoice in God. Rather, it's calling upon the nations, the Gentiles, the foreigners, to join in the praise of the God of Jacob. All you lands, all the earth, all peoples, the nations, you peoples. You get the idea. So, it seems particularly appropriate to connect with a gospel where people are being sent out on a mission to proclaim the coming of the kingdom. Furthermore, that verse 2 seems particularly pertinent as well. Quote, Say to God, How awesome are your deeds! Because of your great strength, your enemies cringe before you. End quote. So, when our gospel makes such a point to discuss how the evil spirits were subject to the missionaries, and how Jesus saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, then this line appears to take on a very specific referent. However we understand it these days, Exorcism was a major sign of the kingdom of God in the earliest Christian materials and demonstrated God's victory over everything that was opposed to God. Ever since we've entered ordinary time in track two, it has seemed to me that the psalm was chosen because it fit well into the mouth of at least one or more of the figures in the gospel reading. And I think we're seeing that again today. We're intended to see this psalm in the mouth of the seventy who were sent out to proclaim the gospel and the kingdom in the name of Jesus. Hence, it is a call to all nations to rejoice in what God has done, to rejoice in God's power over the demonic order, which is important because it's a sign of God's victory and liberation. Now, is there other information we need to help us understand what's going on? All right, here's where we should probably talk about verses. If you were reading along with me in the Book of Common Prayer, you may have been a little surprised that I stopped. The psalm appointed is supposed to go from verse 1 to verse 9, but I only read up to verse 8, at least if you're looking at the verses as they're numbered in the Book of Common Prayer. In the prayer book, who holds our souls in life and will not allow our feet to slip is verse 8. But, If you look in the King James Version, the Revised Standard Version, the New Revised Standard Version, and the the Standard Modern Edition of the Hebrew Text, that's verse 9. Also, if you pick up a Book of Common Prayer that doesn't have the newest lectionary tables in it, and you go to page 919 in the back, you'll see that the old lectionary, before we adopted the RCL, appoints Psalm 66, 1 through 8 for proper 9. In short, 
the prayer book is off by a verse against most everyone else. So, if your bulletin this Sunday contains the line, For you, O God, have proved us, and you have tried us just as silver has tried, it's actually gone one verse too far, even though, by the verse numbering, it looks like you're doing what you're supposed to do. This gives us a nice teachable moment to say something about chapters and verses more generally. In one of the earlier shows, I noted that quotation marks in the Psalms are, in fact, modern editorial additions to the text. The original biblical text didn't have punctuation. If you Google images of the Psalm scroll, one of the important finds from Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls, you'll notice that the Hebrew text has no dots or points, not even vowel markings. New Psalms start on new lines, but other than that, there simply isn't punctuation. The same is true of both chapters and verses. These are later post-biblical constructs. Uh, My main field of study is the Gospels, especially Gospel interpretation in early medieval Europe. If you look only at the Gospel of Matthew, there are four or five different ways of dividing chapters that you find in manuscripts across Europe, ranging from 28 chapters to 74 chapters. The modern chapter divisions that we have are ascribed to Stephen Langton, who is both a doctor at the University of Paris and later Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, right around the year 1200. If you remember Bad King John from Robin Hood and the Magna Carta and all that stuff, Stephen Langton was right in the middle of all of it. He was one of the guys who forced King John to sign the Magna Carta. I say ascribed, but the manuscript evidence does contain an early medieval chapter scheme very similar to ours, for the Gospels at least, that circulated in England, so it's likely that Stephen adopted and standardized a pre-existing system. Now, You'd think that the Psalms are a different case, at least as it pertains to chapters. Because each Psalm is its own chapter, you'd think it would be pretty hard to screw that up. But no, as we've discussed, there are some differences between the way that the Hebrew texts and the Greek texts divide them up, and hence the Latin texts that follow the Greek are mostly one number off, from Psalm 10 up to Psalm 147. Verses are an entirely different story. Verse divisions in the Bible are only as old as the printing press, and we usually trace them to Etienne Robert, a French printer, uh, in 1534. At its most basic level, a verse is essentially a sentence or a thought unit. And so, verses are essentially nothing more than numbering the different sentences. That doesn't seem so hard. But remember, with no punctuation, deciding where a sentence begins and ends is, once again, an editorial decision. What's happening in our psalm is that the translators looked at the first part and saw parallelism. Be joyful in God, all you lands. Sing the glory of his name. Sing the glory of his praise. This is synonymous parallelism, where each of the three lines is essentially saying the same thing three different ways. Synonymous parallelism often takes place in doublets, but this is a triplet, which is not terribly unusual in the psalms. As a result, the BCP editors saw all of that as verse 1, a complete thought. Now, everyone else seems to have looked at it and said, well, the be joyful part isn't exactly the same as the two sing the glory parts, so we'll take the superscription and be joyful and make that verse 1, then we'll take the clearly synonymous doublet of sing the glory, and we'll call that verse 2. After all, synonymous doublets are more common in the Psalms than synonymous triplets. See, 
This is one of the things that Bible translators and psalm translators have to wrestle with. If you're making divisions based on the sense of the text, how you understand it may have some very practical ramifications in terms of how things get numbered. Here, the effect is that the BCP is off by a verse from everybody else. It doesn't always fall that neatly either. I have a terrible time with this when I'm writing for modern people about ancient texts because of the different ways that Cassiodorus, the Vulgate, uh, the NRSV, and the BCP sometimes number their verses. They can sometimes be really off from one another. And this Sunday is one of those cases where the difference in editions can cause some practical logistical issues. Since we're not the first Christians to read the Psalms, what insights have others found within this text before we came along? The Vulgate, and some versions of the Greek, render the superscription of this psalm as to the end, a song, a psalm of the resurrection. And that certainly shapes the way that Cassiodorus reads it. He tends to read this in a a rather interior fashion. As such, he's looking at how we interpret this psalm in terms of the life of faith. He makes some rather interesting connections and insights, uh, but I think the best of these are in the section right after our portion ends. So he takes the center section of the psalm, the part about testing and tribulation, and reads it in light of the martyrs, which certainly makes sense for him. Then, in the prayer books, verse 12, where there's a transition to eye language and burnt offerings, he loops back to the idea of testing and purification by fire in that earlier section and suggests that the burnt offerings mentioned here are our own purified souls, so that the sacrifices described here are really about bringing a pure faith along with good works, and therefore the true offering to God is our transformed life and soul, which is an idea that I really like. Of course, Cassiodorus hears this psalm in the voice of the church. This is the church calling the nations to praise and to baptism. All the water references there about passing through the sea and the water are baptism references for him, naturally. Uh, with Paul's own spin on things from 1 Corinthians 10, which reads that Red Sea passage as a prefiguring of baptism. He also reminds us of the connection between verse 4 and 5, that the psalm calls on us to see the works of God and then makes references to two specific works of God. Um, We'll talk about what those are in a moment, because that's part of another larger conversation that we need to have, which will get us off topic if we try to get into it now. So, Cassiodorus, this is the church evangelizing, making a call for baptism, and for transformation of the inner life. The other historical thing we should point out is how frequently this psalm gets used in the minor propers of the Mass. So, again, those are the chants that get sprinkled in uh, between the the readings and such in, in the old form of the Latin Mass. The first two verses get used in a whole host of chant pieces. These verses alone are found in five different chants that appear seven times throughout the church year, and there are two others from later in the psalm that show up four times at least. So the liturgy uses this psalm in a number of ways. The second Sunday after Epiphany uses this psalm for both the intro and the offertory, connecting it with the wedding at Cana and the first of Jesus' signs where he manifests himself to the world. Another one that I specifically want to point out connects to the later verses of the psalm that we didn't get for today. Do you remember how I said that Cassiodorus reads verses 9 through 11 in light of the martyrs? In doing so, he takes a mention from Augustine, but then goes quite a bit beyond it. So, 
Augustine, in his commentary that Cassiodorus is drawing on, he mentions tribulations that happen to the church at one point, but then goes in a different direction. And so for the most part, he's talking about the, the testing and the fire and the water and such as referring to the baptismal rite. Cassiodorus takes this whole section to be about the martyrs. So the nets, the rods on the back, which is what his version reads as opposed to burdens, uh, the fire and the water are about tribulations suffered by the martyrs. Hence, it's no surprise that the verses 9 through 11 in the BCP, or 10 through 12 in the other way of rendering these verses, are used as the tract for mass on the feasts of multiple martyrs in the old liturgy. This particular spin on the text gets applied liturgically. It's these kinds of connections that made me want to do work on Cassiodorus in the first place. If you want to know why the old Latin mass propers use certain psalm bits at certain places, you have to know how Cassiodorus interpreted them. And then, given that background, you'll have a better sense of what was going through their minds when they sang and heard these particular verses. How do we read this psalm on this day? In order to get where we want to go, we have to attend to one more point. I said in the previous section that when the psalm says, quote, come now and see the works of God, end quote, that it applies to two particular things. It does. But you're likely going to miss it if you're only reading from the prayer book Psalter. And this goes back to the whole issue about translation and underscores the axiom that every act of translation is an act of interpretation. Most modern translators go for a balance between translating the exact words in Hebrew or Greek and translating the sense of what the original language is trying to communicate. Especially when we're talking about idiomatic or poetic speech, sometimes the most literal translation isn't the best because it misses the nuances of colloquial expressions and poetic expressions and things like that. Translators have to decide what they think the sense is and then work accordingly. Verse 5 in the BCP goes like this, quote, He turned the sea into dry land, so that they went through the water on foot, and there we rejoiced in him, End quote. What does this mean? Well, it seems to be a pretty clear reference to the crossing of the Red Sea, as recounted in Exodus. And since we seem to be working in parallel triplets in the psalm, the first two lines mirror each other, and then the third moves the thought forward. But there's a problem here. There's a perfectly good Hebrew word for water, or the waters, mayim, and it shows up a lot in the Psalms. But that's not the word here. Instead, we have nahar, which is the word for river, which then gets translated potamo in the Greek, river, which Jerome then renders in Latin as flumen, river. Uh, the NRSV, the RSV, they all have river. So the BCP is translating this as direct synonymous parallelism, reading Nahar, river, as just another way to say Yom, sea, uh, by using water. It also introduces a so that that isn't in the text as a way to, to sort of bolster and back up this reading. The problem here is that this verse is likely referring to a different event, and I'm going to have to tie this directly to biblical illiteracy. And not necessarily on the part of the translators, uh, but a choice that they made in order to confuse us because we don't know the text as well as perhaps we ought. Most Christians know that Israel crossed through the Red Sea on dry land as a key part of the escape from Egypt out of slavery. We make a big deal out of that. And, as I said, 
we connect it with both baptism and with resurrection. Hey, if nothing else, it gets some major screen time in both Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments and DreamWorks' Prince of Egypt. And let's face it, that's a major way that Americans seem to learn their Bible stories. What we don't have any famous movies of is Joshua. And in Joshua 3, this is where the people of Israel cross the Jordan River on dry land and enter into the Promised Land for the first time. Here are the pertinent verses, Joshua 3, 14 through 17. Quote, When the people set out from their tents to cross over the river Jordan, the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant were in front of the people. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. So when those who bore the Ark had come to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, the waters flowing from above stood still, rising up in a single heap far off at Adam, the city is, that is beside Zarathon, while those flowing toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Dead Sea, were wholly cut off. Then the people crossed over opposite Jericho. When all Israel was crossing over on dry ground, the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, until the entire nation finished crossing over the Jordan. This is also a major event in salvation history. God doesn't just free Israel from Egypt. God also provides a place for them. That's a big part of the story. Psalm 80, in fact, makes a big deal out of this part. It's not just that God took the vine out of Egypt. It's that there was a place to plant it. Now, I know that we we do get into some touchy issues here. Because when we talk about the entry into the land of Canaan, then we have to wrestle with questions about divinely sanctioned genocide and holy war and how we think about that, and how we want to understand that in light of the legacy of imperialism and 20th century genocides, and also the current political issues around Israel and how it relates to the Palestinians and its neighbors. That's a whole other set of conversations that we are definitely going to save for another time. The key thing here is that the translation choice in the BCP writes the crossing of the Jordan right out of this psalm, and thereby loses a reference to an important biblical story that a lot of us have forgotten about, if we ever learned it in the first place. And let's not forget, this event is another important prefigurement of baptism as well. Passing through the waters of the Jordan is what brings the children of God into the promised land And it's precisely why it was so significant that John and Jesus did their initial baptizing ministries in the Jordan, symbolizing a re-entry into the promised land and, therefore, the kingdom of God. And now, finally, with a reference to evangelism and the proclamation of the kingdom of God, we've finally made it back around to what the psalm as a whole is up to and what we want to say about it today. As we read this psalm on Proper 9, In light of the sending out of the 70, we can't and shouldn't see it as anything less than a call to evangelism and to baptism. Here we have a psalm from the people of Israel calling the nations to rejoice in the God whom Israel has come to know, and it invites the rest of the nations to come to know as well. While it makes reference to seeing the works of God, both of these mighty works, the the liberation from slavery out of Egypt and the granting of a new and pleasant land, both involve passages through water, the first foregrounding freedom and liberation, the second foregrounding the inheritance of the promises of God. As Christians, we find both of these pointing to baptism, 
as the way that people from all languages, tribes, and nations unite, not losing their differences, but joining together into a greater identity. Humanity fully united in reconciliation with God, through Christ, by means of the Holy Spirit. Our call, no less than the call of the Seventy, is to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near, and then to share the ways that it has come near for us, and the difference that its nearness makes in our own lives, and ultimately, the invitation for others to join us in living out what this kingdom of grace and reconciliation and liberation looks like and means for us. I suppose it's only appropriate at this point to mention that the Episcopal Church, which historically hasn't done a particularly good job at evangelism in the last century or so, will be hosting a conference in November precisely on how we share the good news with those around us. Uh, It's sponsored by Ford Movement and the presiding bishop's office and ought to be a really inspirational event. Uh, I'll put a link to its website in the show notes. So that's what we have to say today about Psalm 66, verses 1 through 9, as the psalm appointed for track 2 for proper 9 in year C of the Revised Common Lectionary. If you enjoyed today's show, please tell your friends about it and leave a review on iTunes. You can find more of my thoughts at www.saintbeadproductions.com and follow me on Twitter, and there's a link to that on both the blog and in the show notes. Until next time, I'm Derek Olson for St. Bede Productions. The path you must follow is in the Psalms. Never leave it. O God, make speed to save me. O Lord, make haste to help me, to help me, to help me, to help me. O God, make speed to save me. O Lord, make haste to help me, to help me, 